the spirit of Christmas in the early twenties, just seemed to settle quietly over Hastings. It did not rush in and sweep aside Thanksgiving, nor was it forced upon us commercially. It seemed to come along, gradually and with dignity. The Christmas spirit grew within us and around us as the days of early December moved closer to the big holiday. That was Eduardo Ballerini reading a few lines from Magic of Christmas Past by Steve Zebrock. You'll hear more in a moment, but first, welcome to Yesteryear, Stories from Home, a series that features firsthand reminiscences of the joys, challenges, and adventures of living in a small village on the Hudson, just up the river from New York City. I'm Melanie Hoops, and it's my pleasure to bring you our inaugural show. Magic of Christmas Past appeared in the local paper in 1970. It was written by longtime Hastings-on-Hudson resident Steve Zebrock and captures his memories of the spirit of the holiday season in the village, a full half-century earlier. And here to offer context is former Hastings-on-Hudson Village trustee and mayor Lee Canali. Welcome, Lee. Thank you, Melanie. I'm delighted to be part of this wonderful project. I was a neighbor of Steve Zebrock's on Villard Avenue from 1979 until he died. He lived down the hill from me, next to what today is known as the group home. Believe me, Steve was a character. His charming snapshot of life in our village in the early 1920s captures the mood of that time that, in so many ways, still resonates almost a century later. Some of the places and families described are with us today and very much a part of our lives. You will hear Steve describe the divide between the rich and the poor. The poor generally live downtown, close to commerce and waterfront factories, such as Zinzer Chemical. As a vestige of that time, many people still refer to the row of apartments on the west side of Warburton, just south of Washington, as the Irish Flats, as in Coldwater Flats. Steve captures the social scene of the village in the 20s and identifies prominent families of the times. Their names live on today, such as Reynolds and Zinzer. Finally, Steve highlights how cold the winters were back then. I wasn't alive then, but I was born in Yonkers in the late 40s, and from what I have learned, yes, the village were colder and then remained colder throughout the 50s and 60s. I particularly remember a nor'easter in January of 1961 that dumped 10 inches of snow and spawned an Arctic high that stayed over the area for more than two weeks, and it never got over 29 degrees during that two-week period. Steve's story, though set in the 1920s, mirrors the special small-town atmosphere and the unique river town's feel that we experience a century later. It's true. The more things change, the more they remain the same. And for Hastings, that's a good thing. I hope you enjoy this remembrance of days past in Hastings. Thanks, Lee. And now, Eduardo Ballerini reads Magic of Christmas Past. The spirit of Christmas in the early twenties just seemed to settle quietly over Hastings. It did not rush in and sweep aside Thanksgiving, nor was it forced upon us commercially. It seemed to come along gradually and with dignity. The Christmas spirit grew within us and around us as the days of early December moved closer to the big holiday. There were few radios and no television clawing away at everyone's pocketbook or wallet, disrupting the true meaning of the holy season. The entire village hummed with anticipation and preparation. Most people stayed home, 
Only the rich could go away in their automobiles. The latter were still an uncommon luxury to most citizens. Some of the less affluent families could afford to journey to nearby cities. Trolleys, buses, and trains were much cheaper then. There seemed an air of contentment on the part of everyone to remain at home. Being poor in those days did not always mean that families were in actual want or that they were miserable. Most of us kids seldom gave it a thought. Wearing hand-me-down clothes from older sisters and brothers or relatives was accepted as a way of life. If we wanted something, a bicycle or ball-bearing roller skates, we took odd jobs in the village or in the manor, or regular after-school jobs. Christmas always brought many extra ways to earn money. There was a lot of shopping going on in all our stores before the holidays. No echoes of complaint come back to me as I remember, nor was it considered a chore. Everyone was glad to get out of the house for a while to see old friends again. It was looked upon as a chance for fun and relaxation, a time to see just how much a dollar bill could bring. Even the so-called poor went out to buy for Christmas. They had put aside a little for this special occasion. Most of the foreign-born mothers of the village went out by the day to work in the manor, and most of their offspring were glad to have after-school jobs, or even occasional ones just to help out. Caddying at the Ardsley Golf Club meant all of forty cents a round, sometimes a tip. This was something to brag about to the rest of the caddies. A lot of the bigger boys were able to go two or three rounds. My brother Tommy always did, with plenty of tips. But not me. The golf bag was bigger than I was. One round was all that I could manage. So forty cents was a gold star to me. It went right into the family pot. Shoveling snow at this particular time was a sure thing. People were inclined to be more generous. I recall shoveling the snow off the sidewalk for Mrs. Peter Young on Main Street. She was one of my best customers on Friday afternoon when I sold the Hastings News. I liked Mrs. Young a lot, in or out of season. After I finished her sidewalk, she came out and handed me a single coin. A quarter. A fortune in those days to any kid. I nearly fell over. All the other housewives paid ten or fifteen cents for snow shoveling, no matter how large the sidewalk. I thought Gracie Young's mother one of the nicest ladies in the whole world that day. It was generally the first week in December that Hastings storefronts began to change their complexions. Merchants transformed drab, everyday shop windows into Christmas wonderland. Every kid was spellbound. The decorating was usually done after working hours with help from wives or older children. A treat for those of us who were lucky enough to get out. Just to stand there and see this act of magic. We never missed watching Jasper Dahlberg's father, who owned our only five and ten in Hastings. It was right next to us at number six Main Street. The fact that we saw Mr. Dahlberg every day of our lives did not lessen our admiration for him as he changed ordinary dry goods and notions into eye-catching packages of holiday temptation. A sprig of holly, a length of tinsel, or mistletoe over a beautiful life-sized doll. We were lucky, and enjoyed every minute. Not every boy and girl could be out, not unless they'd finished the supper dishes, filled the kitchen wood box, and done all the other chores. Those who were in this fortunate group included my sisters Anne, Bertha, and Liz, our neighbors the Snyders, Annie, Frankie, Joey, and Lulu, and the Mark sisters, 
Lizzie and Bertha. We stood hypnotized before every store from Main Street to Spring Street, glued to each window. The biting wind didn't bother us. What did was the nine o'clock curfew. The first shrill blast and Wonderland disappeared. It meant home. If we lingered, the cop on duty at Maine and Warburton would see to it that we didn't. The Woman's Club of Hastings was always doing something good for the families in need. Especially at this time of year, they made it a point to seek out troubled cases, offering financial assistance or whatever. Mrs. Egbert Handy was one of the club's guiding lights, highly regarded by all and with affection. Mrs. Handy, too, was a special customer of mine on Friday afternoon. Every week as I rang her doorbell, there was invariably an aromatic wave of fresh coffee that greeted my nostrils. And when she paid for the Hastings News, there were always a couple of homemade cookies. If the winter was extremely bitter, Mrs. Handy often asked me in for a cup of steaming coffee. Headquarters for the Woman's Club were in the building next to the Polish Church on Main Street. It also housed our public library and courtroom. All of us spent hours each week in the library room. It was one of our genuine pleasures, even when there was research to be done for school. Miss Cheney, our librarian, was not only a warm friend, but a great help to us in our general reading and school studies. She had an extra heart for the children of poor families, serving them in every way she could. We all responded with loyalty and genuine regard. Miss Handy, like Miss Cheney, also understood children, giving much of her time to them. I remember her calling us kitties. It was the first time we'd been called that, far nicer than some of the names we'd been called. The Girl Scouts were under the auspices of the Woman's Club, headed by Mrs. Theodore Kelly, a jolly, apple-faced lady. The Girl Scouts were called Bluebirds, which I thought was a beautiful name. They'd all been practicing a Christmas piece with the help of Mrs. Handy. All of my sister's girlfriends belonged, considering it an honor to be a bluebird, even though it meant less time for play. Bertha and Liz were all keyed up about the practicing, and so was Annie Snyder, whose family shared the other half of the house we lived in. Every sister and brother, plus all friends, were anxiously awaiting this wonderful Christmas show. There was no live stage of any kind in Hastings, except an occasional missionary who might lecture at the Grace Episcopal Church on Main Street. But we didn't consider that a real stage show. Our local movie theater was beyond us, 20 cents admission at night. To go on a Sunday afternoon means saving pennies and extra jobs to gain admission. The piece was finally performed on the last afternoon of Christmas Eve in the same large meeting room underneath library quarters. The weeks of preparation involved most of the family, since the girls were asked to make their own costumes. This called for skilled hands of mothers, older sisters, and sometimes even aunts and cousins to join in. Mary Pickford was then the reigning motion picture star, not only of this country, but probably the whole world. Rightfully, she was called America's sweetheart. Naturally, all of the bluebirds wanted to have curls and look just like Mary Pickford, and especially for this public appearance before friends and the local population. The night before the show, Mother spent tireless hours with my two sisters, Bert and Liz, wrapping long, thin strips of cloth around each future curl. A torturous job for all involved, even though my brothers, Lewis and Tommy, and I sat by and were amused by their occasional screams. We could hear Annie Snyder's periodic shrieks from the other side of the house. 
as her own mother tried her best to transform her daughter's unruly straight hair into budding Pickford curls and ringlets. Minutes before the eventful curtain went up, every miniature Mary Pickford studied herself in the mirror and believed the previous night's torture was well worth the finished result. Yes, they were certainly looked just like Mary Pickford from the side. And the weeks of constant practice under Mrs. Handy's helpful coaching brought a lively and tuneful song and dance production. The meeting room was packed with families, friends, relatives, and just about anyone who could squeeze in. The happy faces of daughters, sisters, and friends dancing away as evergreens and snowflakes brought hearty approval. Christmas poems, carols, and toe dancing by Mary Whaley brought cheers. When it was all over, the best was yet to be ice cream and chocolate cake for all, and individual boxes of candy with small toys for the cast and all the children. Miss Cheney, Ellen and Peggy Zinzer, Edith McConnell and Edna Handy were lovely hostesses. Mrs. Handy, behind whiskers and much padding, was the surprise Santa Claus. She brought squeals of laughter when she imitated him in basso voice, and as always for all Hastings' important musical functions, the piano accompaniment was by Mrs. Irving Smith of Riverview Place. It was a time when all present forgot who was rich and who was poor. Some of us wondered why it couldn't always be like this. Ice cream and cake could perform miracles even then. There were no street decorations at Christmas time to enchant youngsters, nor did residents dress up the outside of their homes in those days. Still, the magic of the coming holidays filled the air. It was the people themselves who created the exciting hum of Christmas. Wreaths, holly, and occasional electric candles in the window were the extent of yuletide trimmings. It was a rare tree that boasted of electric lights. The winters in the early twenties were exceptionally cold, so much so that, for the first time in the history of the Hudson River, the ice was frozen thoroughly from one side to the other. It was in 1918 that old photos of Hastings revealed the U.S. militia, then stationed locally to protect the Zinzer chemical plant during World War I, on horseback as they dared the icy river over to the Palisades. Huge bonfires burned on various parts of ice, with most of Hastings out to share this exhilarating, though hazardous, experience. There were autos, too, driving across the river. The thought of having to cross the Warburton Avenue Bridge brought immediate shivers. Our best bakery shop was located near Washington Avenue. Father loved their big, crusty rye bread, the circular loaves that filled a child's arms. The winds lashed bitterly around the bridge in its cheeks, noses, and ears. When I had to journey to the bakery, I looked for all available gloves, woolen scarves, and wool pullover caps. My sister Elizabeth excelled at penmanship. She had a flourishing hand, expert at making artistic curls and fancy lilting letters. It looked almost like the old English script in books, so much so that her classmates envied and tried to copy her style. It was Liz who would sit with us the night before Christmas as we composed a long list of presents from Santa Claus. My younger sister, Anne, was also involved as we both gave serious thought to all the many presents we would like to get. We did not have regular writing paper in the house, so improvised by cutting the back of a smooth paper bag to size. Liz made an extra effort 
as she artistically wrote down both our lists. We wanted to be sure that her fine handwriting would catch Santa's eye. There had been prevalent in the years before our childhood a legend that all such letters addressed to Santa Claus would get to him, not through the post office, but by putting the finished letter into the kitchen stove. The flames were believed to then carry the messages to Santa. I vividly remember lifting the stove lid, saying a quick prayer, then dropping my letter into the flames. Anne followed suit. Our eyes traveled up the long black stovepipe as we both honestly believed our letters were on their way to Santa's door at the North Pole. The entire family joined in making tree decorations, cutting strips of gold and silver paper into loops and chains to adorn the tree. Walnuts were dipped into gold paint with short matchsticks inserted into the end, a piece of string holding it to selected branches. Mother and Sister Mary baked little cakes in the shapes of stars, dolls, and animals. Store-bought tinsel added a splendid effect. Real elegance, we thought. Bertha always made the crowning star out of cardboard, painted gold, and edged in tinsel. It gave our tree the final touch of magnificence. Tiny candles were clipped firmly to strategic branches where there was no chance of fire. As far as I recollect, there was not one holiday fire in the village due to Christmas candles. Every Thursday after school, the meeting room below the library was the scene for exciting story hours. We were all transported to distant countries through the spellbinding magic of Ellen and Peggy Zinzer. They were the beautiful magicians of our childhood, from whom we learned about such exotic places as Arabia, Persia, Egypt, and even China. Both Ellen and Peggy were blessed with expressive speaking voices which matched their lovely features. So we never tired of listening or watching. It was also at Christmas time that Aunt Veronica from Perth Amboy would visit with cousins Margaret and Emma, and of course, Uncle John. We enjoyed their stay, since it added a new gaiety and much singing of hymns and carols. Aunt Veronica and Mother loved to sing in duet, each had above-average musical voices, and delighted us with countless Hungarian Christmas carols and hymns. We joined in, too, since we had learned the language early. Standing round the lighted tree, after the supper dishes were finished, the parlor was alive in all its splendor. We seldom used the parlor, only when special relatives or guests came. On this festive occasion, our fat, pot-bellied stove crackled away happily in the center of the room. After Hungarian songs, we all sang in English, with help from Mother and my aunt, who were proud to show they knew the words. Our classrooms were also the scene of happy memories. We all wore our Sunday best on this last day before Christmas vacation. Some of the girls waited until noon when they hurried home to change into their fanciest dresses, even crimping their hair, to make sure they would really outshine each other. In this period, all girls under 16 wore long hair, usually caught by a beret in the back or by a becoming ribbon. Some had curls and featured their assets. Each girl took great pride in seeing to it that her hair at all times looked its very best. At 16, they stepped from childhood to girlhood and were permitted to put their hair up. It was a time for tears and emotion. Boys wore knickerbockers with long black stockings over the knee. They, too, reached a big moment at 16. They were taken to the store and measured for their first long pants. 
The teachers at our Christmas party all entered the happy spirit, too, by wearing exceptionally fancy shirtwaists with colored and beaded embroidery or bright threads of flowers. Heightening the yuletide spirit, they pinned holly or mistletoe in their long hair or at the waist. Mr. Murphy, our school superintendent, was usually Santa Claus. We were all proud that he wanted to be a part of our fun. He distributed boxes of holiday sweets, toys, and a real Christmas card in color for us to take home. These were memorable days, never to be forgotten. This was our earliest introduction to the true meaning of Christmas. Yesteryear Stories from Home is produced by Tim Donahue, Eduardo Ballerini, and me, Melanie Hoops. Sound design by Josh Govier, with help from Lee Canale, the Hastings on Hudson Public Library, and the Hastings Historical Society. And thanks to Jerry Shaw for our awesome logo. From all of us, to all of you, Happy New Year! We'll be back soon with more stories from the place that you call home.